Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science, Facts, and Fallacies, Episode 238. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, as always, joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn. We're going to talk some science. It's a beautiful Hi, day. Everybody. What's it's going on, Liza? Day. It's the weekend, which is great. <laughs> I love weekends. I'm going to go to Costco with my son and my wife, and we're going to buy like a giant tub of grape juice for no apparent reason, because that's what you do at uh, at the Costco. <laughs> so that, that's exactly right. That's yeah, exactly. it's it's a lot of fun. It's the dad life. I dig it. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm thrilled because I can hear you and see you better than I think I ever have before. Excellent. This is a. <laughs> I'm moving up in the stuff. world. <laughs> yes, yes, we got you a microphone. You look like one of those super fancy people on YouTube. There you okay. go. <laughs> let's uh, let's jump into our stories here. We've got three, as always. So first up, antidepressants and obesity medications work, but we don't know why. Here's why that's a problem. Next up, with meat demand expected to grow by 50%, it's immoral to oppose gene-edited animals. And finally, PFAS, EPA's campaign to promote fear over facts. Okay, so first up, uh, this story we're talking about uh, antidepressants and obesity medications, which are actually very, very new. We'll get into some of those, the ones that have been in the headlines recently, but this is a story by Aaron Carroll writing for the New York Times, and he's talking about how our ignorance of how a drug works influences how people think about that drug. So, of course, as the headline gives away, he's talking about the obesity drugs and then SSRIs, which are common medications for depression and some related conditions. But he talks about his own experience with um, depression and, and anxiety and how for decades he wouldn't touch these medications because it wasn't clear how they worked. And his doctor told him as much and then the research he looked into, it's clear that they do have a benefit for some people. But for the longest time, he's just like, I don't know what it does. And so I'm not going to take it. And I think that's a common theme, Liza, that we see a lot with all sorts of topics that we cover here. Um, and I think, I don't know exactly what happened. He says he had some sort of panic attack or anxiety attack when he was on vacation yep. and had a very serious fall. And then after that, he said, oh, okay, maybe my doctor's got a, a justification here, right? So he finally started taking um, one of these antidepressants and it was an older one, but he says right away, he, he realized he had made a mistake. And he said, uh, he said his mood improved. Everyone around him recognized the difference. Uh, and here's a quote. He says, uh, says it was more optimistic, friendlier, and more engaging. And I was forced to reconsider why I had avoided taking the medication for so long. So in other words, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And then later on, he goes on to say he struggled with obesity for many years. And he would diet and he would exercise. Very common story, right? You lose a little bit of weight and then you plateau. And then you gain the weight back. That happens for a lot of people. But um, he took one of these new injectable drugs. He doesn't say which one, but it's probably Ozempic or Wagovi, one of those two. One of the two, yeah. Um, and then he talks about, again, it worked really, really well. And he says, again, I thought this quote was re worth reading in full. He says, I'm not hungry all the time. I'm not thinking about food incessantly. I'm not obsessing about what I wish I could eat and, and what I can't. My mental health and even my temperament have improved so much that my whole family has rejoiced. So I'll stop there and then we can get into the some more spe uh, specific slides. But I just think this is an interesting reply to what's going on in the headlines now because with a lot of these drugs, with the obesity drugs and then with antidepressants for decades now, it's always been this sort of 
like like scare story like people will sort of acknowledge like yeah they sort of work for some people but other people just go crazy when they take these and you know they have all these nasty side effects and that it just sort of seems to be like not the scientific consensus but maybe the cultural consensus is that some people take these drugs but they're still really bad and i think this is a really powerful pushback against that is to say well you know in my case and for a lot of other people it did exactly what it was supposed to do and now my life's better Exactly. And so if you think about it, you know, two of the things that people talk about a lot in, in terms of public health issues uh, across the Western world, at least, are mental health. So uh, it turns out that mental health uh, is one of the leading causes of disability um, in the um, the West, and actually worldwide, it, 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 the disability, the UN measures and the World Health Organization measures disability adjusted life years. And it turns out that mental health is one of the leading causes of disability. So because of anxiety or depression or a variety of other things, um, people don't perform as well as they could. And medications have been developed to try to help alleviate that. And anxiety and depression can be very debilitating and it can make people very, very uncomfortable. So uh, these medications, we know how they work physiologically. We know the biochemical effects that they have. So serotonin reuptake inhibitors increase the amount of serotonin floating around in the brain. And that seems to, for some reason, elevate mood and decrease anxiety. Nobody's sure why, but they know that it does. And so um, since, since that actually alleviates one of some of the most troubling things for people, um, you would think that people would feel better. It's better than, you know, t- taking it out, your anxiety out uh, and drinking alcohol or using drugs or things like the illicit drugs that can actually cause significant biologic harm, you know, uh, heroin and marijuana and a variety of different things. I think that I would rather see people taking SSRIs than I would have it, have, having them be, you know, incapacitated smoking joints on, on the couch. Now, I know marijuana is legal, but it can be, it can, it, I, I think that this is probably a safer option for um, depression and anxiety. And then the same thing with the obesity drugs. We actually know how they, once again, biochemically work. We know what receptors they bind to and things like that. But we don't necessarily know why they're causing weight loss. So we know that these new these new fangled uh, uh, GLP-1 drugs um, will increase the re- release of insulin and decrease the production of glucagon uh, from the pancreas. And But we don't know why that leads to weight loss. And that's, that's an interesting thing to be researching. But we, we know they're effective. And we know that obesity causes um, a lot of problems. It, you know, it, it leads you to have increased re- risk of heart disease, inc- increased risk of cancer, um, increased risk of diabetes. And so it's very important to try to get to the root of limiting these diseases because these are some of the leading causes of death um, in the West and in, in the world, actually. And so treating the underlying condition, ob- obesity, and 
correcting the metabolic dysfunction that's associated with it will, uh, as a knock-on effect, um, improve or decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and, and, and diabetes. Also, what's really interesting is these drugs, there's some association with these drugs being um, neuroprotective, um, and that research per is percolating as well. So ne by neuroprotective, I mean um, it seems to have some benefit in preventing Alzheimer's. So that, that's just one very, very basic research that's been sort of percolating out there. It's not ready for game time yet. But if if these are the these these are all diseases of aging, they're related to obesity. So if we can control the obesity, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's so helpful because there are a lot of downstream effects that people don't consider. Probably because a lot of us won't be alive or it's just not relevant to us. But you know, in forty or fifty years, if I don't know, even if it's just like two or three percent of the population can get their weight under control, that's a big deal. I mean, for that's them personally, for their families, for their friends, for the healthcare system, it's a, it's a big thing. Um, one thing I've found kind of frustrating about this, um, and I've sort of had, it's not quite a 180, but initially I was really skeptical of the weight loss drugs, especially because the, the narrative going around is, well, it's a bunch of TikTok models uh, who, are, who are getting this off label because they need to slim down for their next photo shoot or whatever. And I just had sort of like a knee-jerk reaction. But then you read stories like this and you go, no, even if it's off-label, which doctors are allowed to prescribe drugs off-label, there's nothing controversial about that. And even if it has certain side effects, it's still remarkably useful. And it's not just anecdotes like uh, Aaron Carroll's. There's some pretty good studies that have been done. I mean, it has FDA approval, so the clinical trials have been done. But then you have a few independent studies that have been done. Um, and from what I can tell, it helps the, the drugs in this category. They help type 1 diabetics, they help type 2 diabetics, and they help people who just want to lose weight. So already, even though this is a new topic, you have this narrative forming, and it's, it's mostly surrounding, well, you know, this is cheating, as he talks about in the story, or this causes depression, or this is another big pharma magic cure. And all the while, it seems that there's research that's going already in the opposite direction. Now, maybe that'll change. I'm not sure. But it's just funny. Like, it doesn't matter what data you have. If there's a narrative that people want to sell, that's what you read. It's, it's quite annoying. That's exactly right. And, and it, you know, it also, it also makes people feel guilty about the things that they can't control, right? So, yes, uh, you should be following a healthy diet and you should be trying to exercise and things like that. But some people can't get the weight off that way. And some people have, you know, some people have other things that can contribute to weight gain. So Aaron Carroll was talking about how he is on steroids for ulcerative colitis in that same article. And that can contribute to weight gain significantly. And that can be very hard weight to lose. So if this helps him uh, lose that, that's, that's a big benefit. That's a big benefit. So I think we are too risk averse in the society. And we also are often judgmental of mental health issues um, where people could really get some benefit from some of these medications and of uh, obesity. We, we like to sit in judgment of people, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, this is encouraging. Like, like we said, it might change, but so far, you know, this is, this is a great benefit. So just ignore the headlines, People Magazine and all that garbage. They don't know what to talk yeah. about. <laughs> Listen to doctors. There you okay. go. All right. Next up, a story about uh, meat demand growing and the need to uh, 
boost our supply, I suppose you could say. So this is called, with meat demand expected to grow by 50%, it's immoral, in quotes, to oppose genetic animals. This is by Craig Lewis, writing for Genetic Literacy Project. Uh, and he begins by pointing out that um, gene editing research, of course, you've talked a lot about it in, in crop agriculture, but on the animal side, on animal agriculture, it's also accelerating. And um, there's there's tools now to effectively breed animals that are disease resistant. So everyone's heard of avian flu. There's another one called African swine fever. And then there's one called uh, PERS, which is just porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome. Now this costs farmers over, around the world over a billion dollars. And it just, because my understanding is if, if one animal in a herd gets infected, um, it spreads rapidly. So you have to cull the herd in many cases. So you just lose a ton of money from these animals that you can't, you can't sell it because they get not sick. To mention, not to mention the suffering that these animals go through when they get these diseases. These are really, really significant diseases. If you ever, you should Google what PERS looks like and for, for uh, swine, it's, it's awful. Yeah, it's gross. It's gross. So yes, there's the there's the cost to farmers, which is the you know affects them, but then it affects their customers downstream. Because if you took an economics class, you know there's supply and demand. If there's less supply, price goes up. Okay. Um, now he talks about the fact that there's there's been some movement in the U.S. on on the regulatory side. You know the FDA has been more hesitant than I think most people would like, but they have approved um, a couple. Right. So we've got the GMO salmon which is not gene edited, but it is a bioengineered food. And then we have, there's the, it's called the gal safe pig, which is, it's, that's not even technically <laughs> gene editing anyway, but I guess it still falls under this kind of broad category. Um, but he's, uh, Lewis is based in the UK. So he's talking about there, they just passed this uh, piece of legislation. It's called the um, uh, genetic technology act or something like that. I, I, the name escapes me at the moment, but um it basically um, alleviates some of the regulations related to gene editing and in agriculture, and it's going to, it's going to apply to plants first, and then later on, once they're all satisfied, the the overlords, people in parliament, and so forth, once they're satisfied that there's no animal welfare concerns, they're going to allow farmers to start breeding or uh, raising these animals that are disease resistant. But and I guess it's the same here too. But there's a very big environmental lobby. There's a very big animal rights lobby. And they have the ears of the politicians. And so they scare them about how this is going to kill the, kill all these animals. And, you know, we're going to get, uh, I don't know, some kind of a zombie apocalypse, what, whatever. The same, it's the same <laughs> thing. It's always the same thing, right? It's always um, the same thing. Yeah. So he, he goes on and he says, um, he talks about the science. He says, this is very clear. There's no one in, like, anybody with the relevant expertise who does this for a living says, we can't move forward with this. It's always someone who's on the fringe. It's always somebody who works for an activist group who's like doomsday is just around the corner. And interestingly, he talks about, you know, the bioethics community. There's a lot of bioethicists and I have some thoughts on this in a minute, but there's this, like this cohort of academics who are like, well, we have to discuss this before you move it. Oh, let us, let us talk about this, you know? Um, and he just says, look, the bottom line is, is there's going to be, at least in the next few decades, there's going to be more people who want to eat more meat. And as we've talked about recently, meat is a foundational part of most people's diets around the world because you need protein, you need fat. It's good for your brain. It, like every part of your body benefits uh, to some extent from eating uh, animal products. And so he, uh, 
He just says, this is, we need to get over this is, is basically the message. And I, I heartily endorse it. So what do you think? Liza? Yeah, I think, I think I, w- I wish that some of the bioethics people and the activists would actually sit down at the table with, with people who are developing this technology and have a conversation with them and learn about the technology before they uh, swept it completely away. But there's often so many people are like, we don't want to collaborate with industry. We don't want to talk to big ag or because they're they're biased, the the perception of bias and conflict of interest leads to a decrease in discussions, and I think that's really un- unfortunate because you've got wonderful experts that could really help move the conversation along if we'd be able to sit at the table with them. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that, you know if you really think about animal warfare welfare, you want to make sure that these animals are getting the best healthcare possible. The, Farmers who are uh, raising livestock and, and the veterinarians who are treating livestock want to prevent diseases in animals. And pre- this is one of the things that you can do to prevent some pretty significant diseases So um, that, that cause a lot of suffering uh, in, in animals. And you can think of it almost like a vaccine way, right? So you, if, if, you, if you can prevent disease, prevent, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So um, Technically, it's possible. Um, there's proof of concepts done. A lot of research has been done. There are lots of very cool ideas out there for what you can do to uh, prevent these diseases. There are other things you can do to prevent uh, animal suffering. Um, Allison Van Eenenum from UC Davis uh, has developed a technique to um, pull the cattle so their horns don't grow because that causes lots of injuries to not only just to other cattle but to uh to uh, farm workers as well so that's a preventive thing but i think most importantly one of the things that this could really be important for is um preventing zoonoses like this is from a one health perspective right so if you think about uh flu influenza outbreaks right there are different kinds of influenza but one of the things that makes influenza reason why people get wound up about influenza uh, is because if two different flu viruses get into a cell and swap genetics it's called the antigenic shift. You can get this new hybrid flu virus that people, if they're exposed to, don't have the immune response to. And you can get a big, big, severe pandemic. And that's kind of what they thought happened in, uh, in uh, 1918 with the uh, flu virus. It was a virus that people hadn't seen before. So you can get antigenic shift, which is where they get little mutations because the virus replicate so quickly, but antigenic drift is where they actually swap two different viruses and different animal cells. Now, why is that important? Because you can have a swine flu and you can have a bird flu. And if that mixes in uh, a mixes and produces a whole new flu that people are susceptible to, um, you, you have a big, huge problem on your hands. And this is why flu people get worried every year and warn every year and people get tired of hearing about the flu because they're like it doesn't it's not that bad it can be so if you could genetically if if you could gene edit animals uh birds and and swine to be resistant to that right to the to the swine flu or bird flu you actually decrease the um the likelihood that you can get this new hybrid flu virus that can in, infect other people. So from a One Health perspective, it, I think it's very, very uh, 
has a lot of potential. Totally, totally. It's very important. And I think we've talked about um, the fact that you need the public's buy-in for these technologies. And so when you talk to them about any scientific topic, you shouldn't treat them like they're idiots, which That's happened right. over and over and over over the last three years. And That's I think right. this, it's going to it's gonna take time before we can say that, you know, the, the COVID re- uh, response really pissed people off and now it's affecting other areas. But I think it's starting to happen because you're seeing the conspiracy theories about mRNA vaccines being given to animals and yes. they're trying to, they're trying to sneak the Pfizer shot into your food. And these starts of thing are totally false, but they are starting to spread rapidly. And this is exactly why you don't call people idiots because they have questions about a vaccine or they're skeptical of putting a mask on their two-year-old, right? This is exactly that's, why, because that's exactly this, right. anyways, because I don't want to get it. Yeah, yeah it increases suspicion and decreases trust in science. And, and, and science has gotten us so far that I hate to have these setbacks. And the only way you can help people understand is if, you, if you're willing to converse with them. Imagine that. What, what a concept. You talk <laughs> to people and then they listen to you. It's, it's, I wish we had a word for people exchanging <laughs> ideas. <laughs> That's okay. exactly right. um, I wrote a paper, this is my only peer-reviewed publication, so I'm quite proud of it. It was for uh, the Institute of Economic Affairs in the UK, but it's, a, it's, a, it's like a policy brief for politicians uh, mm-hmm. about gene editing in the UK. And it's called Harvest Time, and you can get it online, it's free. It's a, it's a PDF, so you don't have to, I'm not trying to hawk a book or anything. But there's a quote in there from our friend, the farm babe, who is uh, mm-hmm. very active on Twitter. And she wrote an article that I cited uh, for Ag Daily, and she's talking about animal welfare, and she's responding to this argument. Because the argument is that if you, can, uh, if you can vaccinate your animals or if you can breed them to be disease-resistant, then you have less incentive to take care of them. Um, you know, so if there's some side effect from gene editing, you don't care. Or if, uh, if they're technically disease-resistant, then you can stuff all of them in a pen, and you just have no reason to take care of them. And she hits back at this. And she says, healthy, happy animals grow better and produce more high-quality meat, milk, and other products. High-quality animal welfare makes sense, exclamation mark. So in other words, the the argument that this is going to put animals in worse conditions is just wrong. Because, and I think we've talked about this too before, right? A cow that is is healthy and comfortable is going to yield more milk. Be much more productive. That's exactly right. right. It's going to be much more productive. So in other words, in other words, your idiotic greed argument works in the wrong direction everyone who is skeptical of this. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's correct. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, you can read that paper that I mentioned if you want to get some background, but I just, it's so funny to me the way that these, the way that these ethical arguments work. And I just, I won't say too much about this, but I think it's like, there's these really revolutionary technologies coming online. <clears throat> it's, I mean, it's not quite possible, but we're close to being able to grow a synthetic embryo in, in yeah. a lab, you know? Yeah. And so now mm-hmm. there's this debate about, well, there's a 14 day limit, but do we let, do we do further? Do we just see what happens? And, you know, can, can we, can we let people select the, the uh, embryos they're going to implant and can people, you know, select certain genetic traits, right? There's all of these really profound arguments. And a lot of these, these bioethicist types, they're like, you know, I appreciate that you're skeptical and you have your weird religious beliefs, but we just need to like move forward and we're going to have a conversation. But basically we know what we're going to do already. Like that's the, if you listen to a lot of the commentary about those on the, on the, uh, the human genetic engineering side, 
that's sort that's sort of implied as like it's like yes let's have this conversation and we're gonna pat you on the head and then okay now we're gonna go do this and I'm serious you could they they will say this and I'm not gonna call anyone out but this is just very common rhetoric yes but then you look at something like this they're like hey can I breed my my uh, pigs so they don't get sick and so die like whoa whoa, whoa 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 e- easy what there chief <laughs> yeah we need another <laughs> academic seminar me and my friends who have never been on a farm we're gonna get in this big room a taxpayer expense. We're just going to like share our thoughts. And then you you can't come because you're corrupt in your industry. And I think I'm better than you. Um, (laughs) But if you want to take testosterone while you're pregnant, I mean, who am I to judge? Right? Like this is, I mean, that's, yes. Anyways, go ahead. That's exactly, that's exactly the problem. Yes. You know, they, 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 that, 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 that is a real dilemma because they, they, absolutely will take the precautionary principle on things that they may not have a background on because of being scared. Right. But then if they've got a background on something there, they proceed without, without any kind of discussion on from the other side. So they won't talk to, people who disagree with them either. So either way, you see what I mean? (laughs) So there's, there's not an open conversation either way. So, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating the dichotomy and there's, we couldn't, there's a lot of reasons for this, but it, it, in many cases, it's almost like animals deserve more respect or care than people do, you know? Yeah. Like, like people, humans. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's Yeah. That's, that's what it seems like. That's what it seems like. But people, humans are the only creatures that are so far able to improve the quality of life of everything surrounding them. I guess they can do a lot of damage, but they also can, they also can develop scientific techniques to make people and animals get less sick. They can, you know, they can do environmentally healthy things once they recognize something's wrong. Otherwise we'd all be sort of hunting and gathering like animals. And that existence is not beautiful unless you're a, a pug that lives in a, in a sheltered <laughs> situation and you get everything fed to, to you. You know what I mean? If you're a, a household pet in the States, that's wonderful. But if you are, you know, sort of foraging for yourself, it's a lot harder. Everybody romanticizes what, you know, life is was like back then. But boy, if you go to the Serengeti and you see how animals live, I'm not sure I'd want to trade that. Yeah. Though they don't either. All you got to do is ask them. They're like, hey, do you like clean running water? I sure do. Do you like electricity for your fridge so you can keep your medicine? I sure do. (laughs) Do you like big screen TVs? We are the only species that has been able to to make the world a better place for the world. Yeah, it's 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 also fascinating to me. There's some so many things we can get into, but I just that's the that's the hypocrisy of it. You know, it's like this technology that we understand really well, we're still all these years, you know, almost four decades later, we're still pumping the brakes on this. And then meanwhile, it's like all of these crazy things that are, and I don't want to, ex, you know, exaggerate how far along they are, but they are getting pretty far along. They you know, are, we're, yeah. we're like, yeah, we're going to trust us. We got this. We got this. We're the we experts. Got this, right? <laughs> um, okay. Final story. Uh, EPA's campaign to promote uh, fear over facts. This is a really great article. This is by uh, a colleague of mine named uh, Susan Goldhaber. She's a toxicologist, just like Liza. Um, and she writes for the American Council on Science and Health. And she does such good work on any sort of um, chemical scare that you've read about. Susan's written about it and better than any reporter has. So here she's talking about um, 
uh, and by the way, this story in the guardian that she's responding to, this is from August. So it's, it's not breaking news, but it's still an ongoing issue. So this is a really great, uh, background story, but, uh, the guardian reported in, uh, in the summer that, uh, in a direct quotes here, drinking water of millions of Americans contaminated with forever chemicals. Um, and it's based on some recently released data from the environmental protection agency. Um, and Susan just says, contrary to the headlines, this is total nonsense, right? So it's a very typical theme for us here is the media reports one thing, the study they're reporting on actually says something uh, very different. So I'll, I'll leave you to explain all of the absurdities here because they really are absurdities. And I'm, I'm honestly sort of offended that this is how <laughs> this is how the EPA is operating in this case. But just yeah, the basic Mike, idea. Yeah. Yeah. Go, yeah go, just go ahead. Go for it, please. So we've we've talked we, we've talked about this in a previous episode. But they've set this they've set the benchmark so low that that many of these tests that the EPA does are gonna have to fall above the quote unquote health uh, level. So these the, the, these are the, the, they've set the exposure level so extraordinarily low that it's going to prompt cleanups of water and, and contaminated areas at, at taxpayer expense when there is not a health risk. So uh, the, the, we can get into all the science of PFAS and PFOS and things like that. Basically, they, these are chemicals that were designed to help with heat resistance, flame resistance, uh, retardants, and things like that. You find them all over the place, um, but you're finding them in such low concentrations that they're not going to cause harm. And uh, the, there is a lot, it's the new focus now is uh, that these are for, forever chemicals and they're trying to sort of make it seem like DDT where they're bioaccumulating and they're, uh, and they're going to, you know, to cause health problems. To date, there has not been a very clear link that has been me mechanistically established between PFAS exposure and a health outcome. So and that's and, and that's in toxicology studies. So mm -hmm. the those are going to be high doses, right? Uh, there are, there are some associations, but there's not a mechanistic link. Um, likewise, being exposed to tiny tiny trace amounts in water or other sources is not going to cause health problems in people, um, and having people have to pay for huge, now if there's a big, huge contamination, that, that, that's one thing, right? But having people have to pay for cleaning up detects in drinking water as opposed to huge, huge, huge exposures to the tune of billions, you could, you could redirect that money to public schools. You could, you know, put it in education programs for people who are set back from COVID, be, from being out of school. There are so many more productive things that you could do with the taxpayer money than, than spend billions of dollars uh, chasing down a chemical that has no clear health effects that, in my opinion, uh, was very, very useful. So I think that if I were in a plane crash and um, there were a fire, I would want somebody to put that fire out. Um, the chemicals that they're using to replace the chemicals that they are for PFAS um, are, are, you know, not necessary. They're, they're going to be regulated and studied and things like that. But I feel like this is just a vicious cycle where somebody picks the chemical of the month. There's not a clear association with any, any problem. It costs 
billions of dollars to replace that chemical. The chemical was very useful. Um, and, and people, it just, fear mongering comes from it. And there, there are, uh, there's a lot of money uh, for interested parties to pursue uh, in, in getting people scared about these chemicals. So the, the concentrations that you're finding people exposed to are so minuscule that they're not going to cause a problem. Therefore, I think we need to be very careful about how we talk about those exposures and very careful about how we spend other people's money, meaning taxpayer yeah. money, especially in the setting when there's inflation and things like that. Yes. It's a very good point. I have a kid and another one on the way. So if I could just keep more of my money, that'd be awesome. Okay, great. If you if yep. stop wasting it on these nonsense studies. Um, before we talk about that research, which I want to do, the, the, the variety of products that are enabled by these chemicals are literally like life would not exist without these products. So, so here I'm talking about cell phones. Okay. I mean, right there, right? Just mobile phones alone, uh, wireless devices and base stations. So a lot of home security systems are like that. Uh, printed circuit boards, data centers for cloud computing. So, you know, Amazon, <laughs> right. uh, Spot, Spotify, all, all these sorts of cloud services, optical fiber, uh, wireless communication networks, Wi-Fi, antenna. So if these go away, or if you regulate these chem chemicals in such a way that they have to be replaced, or you need like some something needs to be changed in um, the supply chain, this is going to affect your life in very very noticeable ways. So exactly. before we get into all the science, just this is you know if you're scared of chemicals, you're not going to be able to use your phone to go to Joe Mercola's website anymore. <laughs> You know? That's exactly right. Did that to get your chemical free free uh, product? What? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. That, that, that's that, that's that's a it's a huge problem. I mean, it's the same thing. They do this with all sorts of things. They did it with glyphosate. They've done it with uh, baby powder. They've done it with uh, yes. BPA. They've done it with coffee. They've done it with cell phones. They're doing it with and and this is the same thing. And it we as a society need to figure out how not to be scared. Um, yes, if there's something toxic, we need to take care of it, but it should be demonstrably toxic, not just a suspicion of toxicity. Well, that's the thing. We have mechanisms in place. I mean, that's why the EPA was created in 1973 or whatever it was. It's like they have, and, and, and frankly, it's probably too much, but they have just like the FDA over food, they have sweeping authority over so many products. So if they even suspect right. that something is harmful or it's harming children or whatever, it's gone. It's just, you know, let, let alone the plaintiff's attorneys. You know, regulatory right. agencies have is, a ton of power. And regulatory agencies not only have a ton of power, but they also they also have um, they, they, they're very rigorous and, and you can you can trust them. <laughs> There's an undermining of trust of the in the regulatory agencies in that if you can take the most potent toxin, I know I've said this before, most potent toxin known to mankind botulinum toxin, right? Nanograms will kill a grown man. And you can inject it in your face for cosmetic purposes. It's no neurotoxin. It will kill you, right? If you, we know that we can do that safely because of the regulatory apparatus that is built around that product that says, if you use this according to label, you can use it for cosmetic purposes. So once again, the dose makes the poison. So parts per, I'm not even going to say billion or trillion for PFAS. We're in parts per gazillion, right? Um, it, they're not going to bother you. Just, and and, and if, if you can trust the regulation around a cosmetic product, you can certainly trust the regulation. And it shouldn't be 
actually it's gone way, way, way over-regulated for PFAS. Um, I think that we need to sort of have a happy medium. But regulatory effects are important to protect public health, but when you get to the precautionary principle, they actually can really inhibit um, benefit, benefit for the larger population. Yeah. Another thing to mention in passing, I keep thinking of things to talk about. It's just the way I am. I'm sorry. Um, the, the Guardian and the news outlets and the activist groups that are amplifying the EPA's findings here, they don't believe the EPA either. They are using these results because they know that these, these agencies have a certain level of credibility, which has waned in the recent years. Nevertheless, if the EPA comes out and says chemical X does Y bad thing to your health, that means more than Greenpeace says chemical X does bad Y to your health, right? Um, so th and they don't really care about this science. The Guardian is doing what the Guardian does, which is please its donors. And if you thought the Guardian ran on subscriptions, sorry to break it to you, right? They, no. there's, there's billionaires that give them money to write very specific stories. So the media on this stuff has an agenda. Literally the same conflict of interest they complain about when it comes to industry. That's exactly um, right. But anyways, I just wanted to note that in passing. Just a final thing here, and I, I really want your insight here, but the, the EPA's um, health advisory, which is not legally enforceable, by the way, it's just like a recommendation. And a lot of state and regional governments take it as a justification for their rules. But this is just the EPA saying, this is what we think, you know. Um, nevertheless, they did studies in the Faroe Islands with a few hundred children and they tried to find a correlation between exposure to these chemicals and the immune response to certain vaccines. And that's the foundation, at least this is my understanding, for that's that. the foundation for these regulations that affect the entirety of the United that's States. That's exactly right. That's so exactly talk about right. that. What, what are they thinking? The, Why, what's going the on there? Claim is, the claim is that ex PFAS exposure is, association, is associated with an attenuation of your immune response to vaccines. That is a very sketchy thing just in general. First of all, because there's a whole spectrum of immune responses to disease and vaccines, right? So if you, if you think about it, um, some people who get leprosy stay, you know, carry the bacteria around, but don't really seem to exhibit any symptoms, right? Other people who get leprosy wind up having digits fall off and they have big, um, they've got big uh, problems with their face. They, they get leonine faces where they get wrinkles everywhere and stuff like that. Um, same thing with TB, tuberculosis. Some people who get TB have just a latent infection that don't cause, doesn't cause any problem. And some people are on their deathbeds within, you know, a matter of weeks to months. Um, and that's based on how your immune system responds. You're, so people have different immune responses to different states. And given that, I don't think you can make a sweeping claim about a chemical uh, causing an attenuated vaccine response in a very small one-off study um, on a remote island. We don't, we don't know, uh, you know, we don't know that the spectrum of response that these kids have. We don't know what the setting was. And I, I think that that to, to make multi-billion dollar decisions based on one-off studies is uh, really concerning to me. We yeah. need to we need to be consistent in how we scientifically evaluate things. 
um, because it, it, once again, taxpayer money is other people's money. <laughs> I would love to understand the politics of this. And this is another very fascinating aspect of discussions like, like these, like this one is, um, as you said, a lot of these regulatory agencies are staffed by very smart, accomplished people in the academic world or, you know, wherever <clears throat> they have the expertise to do this kind of work, but they are either overruled by their bosses, which happens over and over again. There's, there's lots of examples we can point to. There's even a survey of EPA employees from a couple of years ago that said, um, I think, I don't remember one administration had just come in and it doesn't matter which one. That's not the point here, but they had, they said um, it was made very clear to us that there are very uh, specific issues that we're going to focus on. And there's very specific conclusions that we need to reach. And so it was all of this, all the scientific staff and they, and they, they were saying, we are being told the conclusions <laughs> and they said, our jobs would be better. We could do what we're supposed to do, namely serve the public. If we were allowed to say what's true, <laughs> you we'll know, it's true. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so and that the, public, the public's yeah. allowed to comment, and you know the the public has access to the EPA. That you can do comment, public comment periods. You're allowed to go talk to the EPA. Once again, the point is that there really should be some dialogue, though, right? Um, and not just pressure from a political point of view. Once science gets politicized, you really lose the forest for the trees. And I think that that's really unfortunate. Yeah, and the, here's the reality: not to be cynical, but it's just true: is that they they don't care what you think. If you email right. the EPA, you know, maybe you'll get a response from some low-level PR intern, but you, you you just don't have a shot because the people in Congress who are lobbied vociferously by activist groups and by different industries and by different pressure groups, whatever, they yell at the EPA. So the administrators at these agencies wake up every morning and they just might get like a really nasty email from Congressman so-and-so and they can't ignore that. I mean, I suppose they could, but they'd probably be fired pretty quickly, you know? So in other words, they have politicians yelling at them. They have really powerful groups like Greenpeace constantly threatening to sue them, you know? So, and I'm not justifying cowardice here, but I could understand why that would incentivize you over time to just toe the line because keep you want to do your down. job and you want to go yeah. home at five and just live a life, right? You don't want to be at constant war with you know, Dick Durbin or whomever, you know, it's just like, you just don't have the energy for that. So anyways, the system's kind of juiced up. I'm sorry. Right. So you have to, as I've, as we've said before, right, you have to get involved with other groups that share your values and you have to push back. Otherwise we're just, it's not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. That's right. Yeah. Well, have a great weekend. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's, it's going to be a great weekend. And Obviously, progress can be made because there's lots of examples on the other side as well. So there, I'll leave you with that. There's a little nugget of happiness, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week for 239. Until then, follow us on social media. It's at Dr. Liza MD, at Cam J English, and the Genetic Literacy Project is just at Genetic Literacy. Follow them, read their content, because uh, they make this all possible. So that's awesome. And with that, have a great week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.